have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. We also do get, with Hubbard and Parsons, this consistent references to the Greys and the Nordic ones, that the Greys are your stereotypical alien that has the big black eyes, small gray skin, kind of, you know, thin, you know, you know, the alien. I'm aware of the alien, And then the, the Nordic ones being very closely aligned with what we imagine the giants to be. Yes. We never see in the original Twin Peaks anything necessarily resembling the Greys, but we do obviously see Um, something close to the Nordic type. No, I'd say, again, with the Greys, as an example being, where's Judy, the monkey blank face that is obscured by darkness in a very, and kind of parallels potentially uh, what we're going to likely be covering as we're describing these Grey entities that are located in this book. Richard Nixon who had invited along Mm. Dougie, as well as someone he played golf with, an obscured name inside the documents, but later revealed to be an actor that was very prolific at the time. Do you have the name? Richard Gere. Thank you. With Richard Gere, it was then Richard Nixon said that, as far as secrets are concerned... A tale of two dicks. A tale of two dicks, indeed. (laughs) But Nixon ended up saying that, as far as he was letting these people in on and these discussions that we're having that secrets tend to have a certain value. They have something in which like when you're holding on to it, they, they, mm-hmm. the more that other people know about the less power you have on it. But at the same time, if you don't ever cash in on it, then it's practically worthless as well. So, Who killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> you got to cash that in at the right spot. Regardless, that is when he decided to open up whether or not uh, from Dougie's musings to do something such as discredit them from pushing things further or for some other reason that just left unknown. Richard Nixon takes them both aside, takes them to a facility, mm-hmm. takes them to a place in which, like, it seems that other people aren't interacting as much. There's less security that seems blatantly around, but they're taken to a dark room in which, beyond a means of glass, there is a figure right. obscured in the darkness that seems to peek through. Again, yeah. I... I I remember the Judy strange monkey face that was obscured and grayed out inside the darkness and compare it to that because potentially that that could have some form of parallel, but regardless is the strange alien nature that is they're unable to connect it to anything else and are left haunted from the experience. The, the way that it's described as being this cold presence is very similar to what Jacoby had referenced with ayahuasca and what Major Briggs would go on to reference with his experiences as well. Doug says that as far as he's concerned, he can look at this situation. He can know tricks that could be behind it. He knows examples of them, but there was this large emotional mm-hmm. anchor that Dougie couldn't help but feel afraid like the, right. there was a like a very powerful force behind what he was seeing and even nixon who kind of knew it was coming and knew what to expect he was still sweating yes. like there was still that visual evidence of that before we get too far into richard nixon's Funland, i do want to <laughs> make sure i reference one last thing with parsons and hubbard okay. that parsons called the bomb testing area in white sands quote such a fertile ground for the working of babylon Mm. and they referred to their job there as to call forth the elemental. Okay. 
And apparently the sort of hell gate that's nearby is one of the seven gateways to the planet, on the planet to hell. And that was believed by Crowley, but also the Tongva Indians who lived in the area. And Milford admitted it kind of gave him Pearl Lakes vibes, Mm. which would indicate potentially something there. Potentially. So if we link the idea of the gateway to hell as being similar to Glastonbury Grove, right? Mm -hmm. And the portal that exists there, you are linking the idea of hell to the indigenous people of this area to what likely was the lodge experience mm-hmm. uh, for going by the Twin Peaks rationale. What I think is notable, again, is this recurring idea of nuclear danger, this recurring idea of the atom bomb being dropped being this huge event that the bomb testing area is such a fertile ground. What makes it fertile? What is it destruction? Is it is it fear? Is it... Is it the nuclear properties themselves, radiation? Like, what Mm -hmm. is it that makes it fertile for bringing forth this thing called the elemental? Mm. Those are things I kind of wanted to make sure I I highlighted and can dance around in the background. And you can put a pin in that. No, I appreciate that. Well, I'm thinking about all of this, though. And to go a little bit back towards the strange overall grade monkey face that is in absolute obscure darkness with the fact that these other entities seem to interact with others, Mm -hmm. if you will, but more so in the foreground yet in the background, such as wearing masks and dancing around. I wonder if there is some form of tangential meeting of the lines, if you will, with what these beings interpreted through Twin Peaks as a fiction could be using the lens of things that are alien through potentially literal gray, uh, black-eyed aliens. Mm -hmm. Again, like, the image is very visceral inside my head. Well, it also doesn't hurt that it's not too hard to imagine an alien head of, like, a gray alien being superimposed upon an owl. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hypothetically, maybe that happens in the book somewhere. What? Did you see that? (laughs) There's There's a part in the book where, depending on which lens you look through, the blue and the... Yeah. The red, you could either see an owl head or an alien head. Mm. Is that not in there? Uh, there is one in which it does show an owl and a pyramid eye, if it was on could that page. I could have sworn there was an alien one in there, too. There could but... be. There could be. There have been, might be one that I ended up overlooking. The owl that the was most large, prominent. it's the prominent eyes, the small mouth, the yes. sort of shape of the head. It's, it's owl-like in some regards. What I want to go through most of all, what could be not necessarily something confirmed, but something potentially compelling for... If you are to connect these lines, just imagine behind that glass, transcended through time itself, this lost overall entity. What if that entity were to speak the name of Judy, still caught in this obscure darkness alone? What if, say, for example, being pulled back, we see our dear old agent again, but instead is being now displayed as he's on his complete loss, unable to communicate anymore? I think I know what you mean, but I just am imagining the funny scenario in which (laughs) Richard Nixon, Dougie Milford, and Richard Gere are looking at a monkey in a box and are all afraid of it. Um, But I'm assuming you mean it's not literally a monkey. It's It's transmuting its form as it's going through these different realms. Through the obscure darkness and the strange darkened eyes. I'm not as compelled. I'm not as Mm -hmm. compelled by the comparison you're drawing in the sense that I don't think the monkey looked like an alien. Mm. So I'm, I don't, I think this is a a leap. Looks alien, but more so I'm taking Uh, the colored hued that's obscured by darkness because unfortunately color comes from the absence of light. I'm no, no cut. Color comes from the presence of light. You take the absence of that, anything looks gray. The darkened eyes can be something in which is just something that's not completely detailed or dependent on the form. I do think they used a literal monkey inside of... I think it was a monkey. Yes. 
I think it was in the, the sense th- that I don't think we're meant to look at the monkey and assume, oh yes, it's an alien. <laughs> like I think it's a monkey, and I guess in my interpretation, maybe it's the idea of the primal animal part of a human that the closest thing to a human that's an animal is a monkey uh-huh. so it represents maybe the animal side of a person Very or well. the the sense of a scared animal inside that can happen when you're truly afraid it goes beyond reason it goes to your instincts that's maybe what i would go but okay. i think it's using monkey as a metaphor because monkeys are like people and being a scared <laughs> little monkey is a specific it, thing i don't think it's because oh the eyes are blackened and it looks like a big alien I'm, i don't I'm, know I'm, I'm just using more so the staging more than anything that's been described inside mm-hmm. of this to see that i've seen parallels inside twin sure. Peaks before that it's almost a little bit compelling to me but at the same time i also enjoy the example you brought up richard nixon being afraid of a monkey like they all bring it in and uh and dougie's terrified <laughs> existentially richard nixon sweating and Re- greer is looking around like this they, they didn't monkey, know what emotion right? it was at first, yeah. but no one turned the lights on for them to realize it was guilt that was inside them because they just have a monkey in the middle of nowhere that they're staring at. Wow. Really makes you think. <laughs> President Nixon. President Nixon, baby. Super interesting. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I hardly ever heard anything positive about Richard Nixon in my life. Have you, Professor? I think that people thought Nixon in Futurama was funny. Cool. So, I don't know. Were you surprised by how Nixon's portrayed in this book? No. Okay, go on. <laughs> where where have you encountered Nixon before that reminds you of this? Only in Light Passing, similar to you, in which, like, the largest contribution with Nixon was the sense of Watergate, was the sense of conspiracy, was the sense of not exactly being the best guy. But on the same token, I'm looking at the tone of this overall book, and I also understand that even though I may not agree with a lot of people, people are more complicated than what history ends up telling us. So I wasn't too surprised. I was just more so following along with this individual that Mm -hmm. I hardly have any knowledge on. That's fair. And we have no way to fact check it at this moment without doing more research. So <laughs> it, it uh, it's interesting. He, he doesn't seem to be aligned with the Freemasons or the Illuminati. It seems like he's aware potentially of the Illuminati. He uses language when he's talking to others in private where it seems like he's aware of the sort of presence of the wise men, yeah. of the potential influences of the Illuminati without necessarily naming them by name. But we don't get the sense that he's like TJ Maxx or Lewis and donning the the Freemason cult. So he isn't on that side. He's more of a neutral party, the same way that Dougie is a neutral party. But once Project Grudge dismisses all the UFO accounts and shuts everything down, Milford becomes Project Blue Book's original personnel. They do a bunch of sightings throughout the 60s and 70s. But what ends up happening is that when Project Blue Book comes to kind of a close early into Nixon's presidency, I believe... Um, it's kind of shut down very quickly by this report that Nixon immediately doesn't buy because he doesn't trust the guy who made this report. (laughs) He quickly allies himself with Dougie, who he had been in correspondence with through their letters over the years. Yes. That Dougie was using Nixon as an inside source during the Eisenhower administration. And some of the interactions between Dougie and Nixon show, especially with that prior interaction with the actor, Shows mm-hmm. that he's willing to keep his mouth completely shut, even if, like, light gesturing on from the president. Unless the president literally says out loud, like, yes, go ahead. It's your job. You can speak now. It, it shows a lot on the tight-lipped nature of Dougie and probably where they would be able to confide in each other a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. 
He's a man you can rely on when your back's against the wall, and Nixon was constantly back against the wall. Except if you're the brother of Dougie. Unless, you're the Unless you are the brother, uh, everyone else is free game. Everyone else is free game. <laughs> one little anecdote that I thought was kind of weird is that at one point during Eisenhower's presidency, he disappeared for 42 hours while on a quail hunting trip in Georgia. Yeah. I don't know the authenticity of that report in real life, but this gives obvious Major Briggs vibes, right? The idea mm. that he disappeared for 42 hours and one source, I don't think it was ever specified, says that Eisenhower had been approached by one of the Nordic types, i.e. one of the giant type of aliens or supernatural entities, that wanted the U.S. to give up nukes. Obviously, Eisenhower wasn't going to allow that during the Cold War. Yeah. So he's like, nope, not going to do that. Whereas he received a counteroffer from one of the gray aliens who, you know, they were like, hey, we don't need your nukes. We just, we'll give you some technology. I'm going to assume weapon technology, by the way. We'll give you some technology. Eh, just give us some, uh, give ge- cell phone. some, uh, some uh, genetic material. <laughs> some, uh, you know, some of that, uh, some of that genetics. <laughs> so this is weird because it just says, from what I remember reading, it just says a source. It doesn't specify who. So mm-hmm. it's like, d- did this happen? Are we meant to believe from the book that Eisenhower had been taken away on a hunting trip the same way Briggs had been taken during the fishing trip. Mm-hmm. He had been approached by two different entities, one being more like the giant and one being more owly and gray manny and who knows what he. Mm-hmm. And he chose the offer that involved keeping the nukes, getting the tech, and just giving some genetic material. And then what's the genetic material? What's the implications of all this? Mm-hmm. It's questionable. It is very questionable. But it also kind of keeps on like playing with the idea of warring factions, if you will. That this this implies the fun. good and evil route, I think, pretty pretty nicely. I, I, I if think... you want to use evidence throughout the book to support different conclusions, this is one where it seems like the Nordic type, i.e. the giant, yeah. i.e. more friendly to Cooper, more of an ally, more helpful, mm-hmm. wants to de-escalate, de-arm. And considering what we've heard about nukes in this book so far, it seems like getting rid of nukes <laughs> would be a good thing. It doesn't involve some the antichrist and then meanwhile you have the other alien over here which again it says tech i'm gonna assume during the cold war and considering eisenhower it's probably military tech it's probably mm-hmm. weapon tech mm-hmm. and being exchanged for genetic material sounds extremely <laughs> shady oh well you don't want to give away any of your genetic material it seems like a steal to me so I, I, again, wonder if we're meant to believe this happened or not, because it's just a specific thing for the book to randomly mention. Oh, by the way, a source says this. A source says this. Some source, some source somewhere. No, I, I, I think it plays with those. And not uh, Though I do believe in the two separate factions, the good and evil is probably where I still... I, I'm still, of course, like a little bit of skeptical. I'm curious. Like, and it definitely is not in our best interest for one of them. I mean, there's plenty for me to look at Bob and say, by my own personal perspective, I think he's evil. But at the same token, uh, all owls as a whole, uh, I personally am just, I want to hear it out from the owl side. Uh, I would like I would like to uh, get a council ready for the owls. I think that all we can really do a council of is owls. to take it seriously. <laughs> we can only judge morality from our own human perspective. We can't judge what's good and evil based on our assumptions about the rules and mindsets and orthodoxies of these creatures, we can only judge them based on our moral scale. Mm -hmm. And last time I checked, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of people would say that sexually assaulting, abusing, and murdering your daughter 
is bad. It is, is very, evil. very bad, yes. And also murdering many, multiple people, including Teresa Banks. Okay, now let's measure up uh, how many crimes we know about the Giants. And that's my point, though, is that all we can really say is that from any human perspective, Bob is evil. Yeah. There's no way to defend Bob. No matter what the motivations are, no matter what greater good there is, Bob is an entity that feasts on the pain and suffering of families. Yes. There's no redeeming that. I'm sorry. <laughs> he could have he could have single-handedly saved all of Australia from a meteor. <laughs> and I'd still say he's evil. Like he's just an evil guy who saved Australia from a meteor. <laughs> Whereas like the giant, we don't have enough. We don't have enough evidence either way. The best we can really say is that he helped Cooper with clues to figure things out. Oh, but where thing. did those clues leave him? And that was to the Black Lodge. He stole his ring. He stole He's his ring. He's a thief. He's a thief. Temporarily. Because he gives he it back. It, yeah. He borrowed it, He borrowed his ring without permission. Tisk tisk tisk. <laughs> so I, I, I do think it's, it's very curious. Mm -hmm. Nixon, throughout this whole thing, is, is just interesting to me because he is portrayed as kind of a good guy. Mm -hmm. I say kind of because he still, like, again, does Watergate crimes. He's still mm -hmm. got that crooked element, and I don't think Dougie denies it. But even after, you know, he is ejected, you know, he leaves the White House, he resigns, Dougie still does support him in the newspaper. He still does say that Nixon is being you know, unfairly judged here by the nation. The loyalty remains and likely from his line of work, suspicion also remains. So, but in, in terms of Nixon's impact on the book, the main thing is that he is one of the main facilitators that keeps the investigation into the UFOs going mm -hmm. because he is well aware that it is still happening within this sort of new Majestic 12 scenario. Mm -hmm. The CIA and the powers that be that are not beholden to the president are already doing these things and investigating these, there needs to be some form of accountability and currently there is none. So if he can't rein in these powerful forces that, again, I'm going to say Illuminati, if he can't fight back against them, the next best thing is to counter it with their own research. And again, it seems like Dougie and Nixon's main motivation is to find out what's going to stop potential disaster. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like Nixon, from anything we get in the book, is doing this for ulterior motives. It seems like he's genuinely thinking this is the greatest threat, even beyond the nukes, even beyond Russia and the communists. This is the thing to be worried about. And yeah. nobody's listening. Nobody's taking it seriously. And you can't trust anyone. Mm -hmm. And so he handpicks Gordon Cole, right? Yeah, he does, doesn't he? It's so funny that he handpicks Gordon Cole. It's so funny that this guy in which, like, a lot of bad stuff seems to be centered around, maybe because of his involvement, such as Gordon Cole. Uh, Gordon Cole has been chosen for this. It's so funny with all the people that Gordon Cole sort of, like, flings at certain situations and the curiosity of the Blue Rose case. Gordon Cole, you're a very funny person with your funny little electricity that you put inside of your ears. You're a funny guy. Funny, funny guy. It's very humorous. I do agree, Khalil. It's funny. So I guess the question comes from mm. this stance of Gordon Cole is vouched for by Richard Nixon. Yep. And Dougie Milford, two individuals yep. with bad reputations. Yep. Known for subterfuge, lying, yep. deceit, mm -hmm. general cro crookedry. Mm -hmm. but, but in terms of this book, are unambiguously forces for pursuing truth and being wary of disaster from unseen forces that send Major Briggs, who seems to be one of the most reliable people we've met in Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. 
to investigate these things to ward off potential danger. Mm -hmm. Does the endorsement of Richard Nixon and Dougie Milford help or hurt your worries about Gordon Cole? Hurts, very much hurts. So you're more suspicious of him because of those two. Yes, I think that the more that I see him sticking his thumbs into pies, the more I get concerned. Because at the end of the day, Gordon Cole is seems to be at this weird epicenter. And like I mentioned before, one of the themes that I find inside Twin Peaks, human error, intentional or not, seems to be a driving factor. I don't know if Gordon Cole even realizes what necessarily is going on with him, but at the very least, I do know that his connection to electricity, the fact that one of the magician's boys looks a lot like him, doesn't it? Uh, the little the little child, the Tremont yeah. boy. Uh, <laughs> Gordon Cole is so much tied into all the goings-on that there's no way for me not to see him on the radar. And the fact that he is very well tied with a government body makes him all the more suspicious. So do, uh, real, real talk, I mean, we have no proof either way. I just want your opinion, yes. your feelings. Yes. Do you think Gordon Cole sent Dale Cooper to Twin Peaks for quote-unquote bad motives in the sense that did he send Dale Cooper there in a way that's going to cause darkness? I think that, well, it really depends on what you mean by darkness. Like, because Major Briggs basically reasoned after his revelation in his sleep yes. that the reason Gordon Cole sent Dale Cooper must be to be my successor, must be to work with me on this. Why else would Gordon Cole have sent him? Mm. Turns out it's almost the exact opposite with the Mayday signal. With the Mayday my question signal. is, did Gordon Cole know or have reason to believe something like the Mayday situation could occur? I genuinely think that if anything this may be an operation very similar to a Blue Rose-based operation. Like, is it so hard to believe that if Chet Desmond, who was literally at the mm -hmm. layer above, like, what happened to this operation was sent out on a Blue Rose case, who's to say that the subsequent one wasn't on a, a similar operation? Are these suicide missions? These are what We're, I imagine. They're soul annihilation they're missions. They're soul annihilation missions. I do think that the inherent risk found behind it, as well as trying to keep your mouth shut about them especially, shows that either Gordon Cole is somewhat aware of the potential risks or is unaware with something influencing him with, say, for example, his weird heart of hearingness. So if you were to if you were to imagine like a spectrum, you know, with two polarities on the left, we say Black Lodge, evil, dark, Illuminati, all, all these terms that kind of end up overlapping each other. And then on the other polar opposite side, you have your White Lodge, Freemason, independent, good, whatever, okay? If we imagine there being this binary and then all of the spectrum in between those two different alignments, would you put Gordon Cole smack dab in the middle or are you leaning him a certain way? Black Lodge. How much? Very much so. Uh, I don't see him on the line, but mostly because I don't see many of the white lot associations. So, like, even if we use the information that we find from here, where someone 
could be interpreted as a giant, someone who is of the natural world or anything like that. Gordon Cole seems to be part of the more industrial world in the respects that he works inside of an office building at all times. Mm -hmm. He has earpods in at all times. And though he may be insightful in some cases, for the most part, he is yelling things out into the world and letting them be done because it's all part of his work. It's all part of his job. I have no evidence that I can think of that would lean him into that sort of like white lodge thing. He can hear Shelly. Shelly's okay. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, do you interpret that as in he is getting that like receiving credit or is it Shelly giving that receiving credit? So what is Shelly by extension of that? Shelly is cherry pie. I don't think hearing (laughs) Shelly, which is twin peaks. I don't think hearing Shelly is going to be the case, but I do think that, Shelly cuts through the static in a way that what are the what are the big crimes of Shelly? What are the big crimes of Shelly? Marrying Leo Johnson. Is that a crime? <laughs> no, that's victim blaming. I, I really don't I really don't think there's much. I mean, a lot of what she does is in self-defense. Um I, I think you'd be I think even the most like prudish of minds can't fully blame her for her affair with Bobby. Yeah. Considering what's going on in her life circumstances right now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think she's given too much of crimes. She does make a cruel joke about Leland falling on top of the coffin during the funeral where she's at the diner. She's reenacting it with her hands. Mm-hmm. That was pretty mean. <laughs> but it's also very funny. What I want to say <laughs> is that there is something that goes on with Bobby and Shelley towards the end that that makes a curious circumstance for something such as Gordon Cole. But if we are to take uh, a, someone who is generally very caring kind and has done very little crimes especially with her given circumstance i mean shelly is a good candidate and if she can speak through the static that is afflicting goran cole and everything around him and he looks at her in a very sort of like like looking up to someone sense you could almost argue that that's just because goran cole is so deep Mm -hmm. into the electricity into the points of what his work is that this moment of freedom sends him to almost into a transcendent state. So, like, it, like he, he be it's he becomes a bit different in his ways and mannerisms that seem more freeing than any of the more strict focus. And I'm gonna be doing this, and you're gonna be taking this orders. It seems that he's in a more zen state around uh-huh. Shelley. So, continuing this sort of alignment chart idea in our minds, yeah. this sort of spectrum. Do you also put the people associated with Gordon Cole? like Dougie, Jeffries, or Albert Rosenfeld, or Nixon. I'm saving <laughs> Cooper because Cooper's a whole different thing. Yeah. But like the other people that are golden coral, so where do you put them? Like right now, <laughs> just in your heart. Everything goes through the Black Lodge in my mind yeah. in order to make it through the White Lodge. And like as far as these individuals of, like every single person in one way or fashion is associated with the Black Lodge. Because it is something that tries your soul. It is something that ends up sort of like putting you to a test if everything is honest in that respect. In order to balance, they have to have a foot in the door on the other side. Like, not completely through, but still a foot in a door. Mm-hmm. Now, from the insights and the openness that Dougie gives forward, that could be a potential factor uh, when it comes to the fact that we no longer see Jeffries, and it looked like he was caught in an ensuing panic before absolutely disappearing from the universe. I think that he died off inside the Black Lodge. I don't think that he could go any bit further. Do you think he was an agent for good or bad or nothing? Like- I think he was an agent. I think that 
his line of work led him into circumstances that had him focus on the job, but I haven't seen anything other than the small emotional attachment to one woman of Judy. Because the readings I'm getting from you is it seems like you view Gordon Cole as potentially more on the evil dark side of things intentionally or unintentionally yeah he might be he might be being used because he's tapped into that frequency but whatever the situation might be you view him in that way but i don't think you seem to view the other people that he works with or hires because it seems like he's sending people like albert or sam stanley or or yeah chet desmond i i think it's because gordon cole takes the most action when it comes down to Nixon, sure, he's saying to speak to Gordon Cole, but it's not like the affirmative action of, like, speak to Gordon Cole and do this or go to this mm-hmm. place and you will find Gordon Cole. No, it's instead taking the more freeing action of go do this. And, yes, like, Gordon Cole has a place to run. It makes sense that he is giving those directions, but it doesn't stop that he is the guy pointing fingers saying do the thing. Speaking of fingers, Richard Nixon also has the green jade ring. What do you make of that? Dougie describes him worrying the ring on his finger and it's, you know, heavy implications. It's the ring. And it's the same ring that Parsons also had. Typically speaking, this ring is associated with evil, but it doesn't mean the person wearing it's evil in the sense that we had Lewis earlier with that ring, right? And we had, he wasn't necessarily evil, Mm -hmm. but it seems like omens, like bad things happen to you when you wear that ring. What do you make of the fact that Nixon had that ring? Take it from a point where one is to take a journey and the one warning that you have is do not take the ring. Like they're mm-hmm. like that is what we were given by the first instance of the ring by the chronology of the secret history. I don't know if there's per se clear signs that say don't take the ring. The only instance that we truly get from not trying to take the ring are between both Chet Desmond as well as Laura Palmer. But we get to see more directly what's going on in Laura Palmer's head and more emotionally for the sake of, like, Dale Cooper saying, don't take the ring, Laura. No, don't take the ring. Very similar to the man who bestowed the ring upon Lewis saying, don't take the ring. It's a point of temptation. It is something in which, when given into temptation, that is when the true horrors and the true connection starts to begin between the either the start of the trials or the loss of the trials in this well we know that richard nixon lost the trials we know that richard nixon lost the trials in multiple (laughs) ways but still gave into some form of temptation saw this overall thing that was on their person and then took it in upon themselves i think that there's also a point of parsons it's just the larger extension of what the ring means what is that point of temptation what is something yeah. in which, like, he would be willing to put on, and why did that counteract against him? It's funky in that respect. I don't think, though, that would, there was ever an instance where Gordon Cole wears the ring or any of the Lodge spirits are seen wearing the ring. They're just, like, the Lodge spirits mm-hmm. are known for holding the ring, holding it aloft. No one else is wearing the ring to show that they are being wed to a singular entity right. or those entities are involved. It's a very human thing to have, and maybe that's also where I take Gordon Cole, and I'm more easily able to put him into this assignment, mostly because I don't see him as human. I see that he has skin. I see he interacts with other people. 
But if you if you ever find out that you're wrong about Gordon Cole, are you going to yes. regret saying he's a skinwalker? <laughs> like, are you going <laughs> to? I don't. Again, intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> like, if he becomes a really nice, good person in the return or the final dossier, are you going to? And be... then he's going to do amazing things with that. Fantastic. <laughs> what Gordon Cole comes off to me as is an acting force in the background, very similar to the Lodge Spirits, but more tangential. He is living. He likely has a history. And how much of that is the influence around him, I don't know. You mean more tangible, right? Is that what you're saying? Uh, tangibly, yes. Yes. Huh, okay. Uh, that's interesting. I uh, I can't comment too much on a lot of these things. But <laughs> I, I find your thought process to be really interesting. And I know that between this this episode and the last one was like four hours, we're, we're doing a lot of really good tangents. I think they're very fun. And, and, uh, <laughs> listener, I, we appreciate you sticking around and, and being part of these conversations. And Thank if you. you ever have any contributing thoughts that you want to either run by the professor and get his opinions on, or you want to just kind of chime with your own two cents, you can always reach us by emailing us at snake dreams at gmail.com tweet us at snake dreams one. That's the numeral one is in one ring steals your fate. Yeah, no. And just to know Khalil looks through these to sift through them. Yep, because for of spoilers. Course. Spoilers. And, and again, it does help us in the algorithm, but I also will plug the YouTube because that's a place we can see your comments and other people can too, if you have something you want to share, because I do think, think that a lot of the things you're saying are very interesting for the exact moment you're in because you have not gone through the return yet. Nope. So you are at this very interesting intersection. You're a little, little, little pure baby mind right now. I'm you a don't pure know, little baby. You don't know the secrets. I'm a you only know man. some of the mysteries. <laughs> Fascinating stuff as always, Professor. Uh, a little, little anecdote here that during the saga of Dougie, you know, he gets involved with Major Briggs. A lot of that we've already talked about, but it is funny to me when Briggs first moves to Twin Peaks. It's under the, you know, the guise of him working on these other things, but uh, he's going to be supposedly just upgrading the runways of the Ungwin Field. So nice to see Ungwin mm, Field come back. That I, sounds familiar. I, I like Ungwin Field coming Ongwin back. Ungwin Field Observatory. I do like that coming back, and uh, this obviously is a cover up for listening post Alpha or LPA. I just found it funny, Carl Rod's letter, that he's asking the mayor to investigate. Which, by the way, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's the thing not available on Audible. It oh. skips that completely. Really? Which either A, makes it very notable that it skipped, or B, maybe there was something like maybe on the CD that like it was completely skipped. Like like there was some sort of like right just, for the person. Does it mention through. that it exists even? Uh on the following page, it goes deeper into Carl Rod's letter. Like they do actually converse with it. Uh, like, so if you were listening to Audible, would you notice it's missing? You would not notice it's missing. They still converse over the piece itself. They, it's just that you will mm. not get the actual piece of Carl Rod complaining about all the lights and the sounds and there's That's people really that are part of the military. It's the one that gets skipped. If any, legitimately, I know I just did the call to action a moment ago, but like, <laughs> if anyone does know why, I'd and, be curious. And the, the thing is, is like, yes, yeah, so it's a newspaper clipping. But the other newspaper clippings that are found later on are voice acted and read through. I'm almost wondering if what happened is they were trying to get, this is my best guess, is that it was a, a last minute issue where they were trying to get the voice actor who was going to do the voice, because this is the only part that Carl Rod would talk, right? I'm so sure. If they either were trying to get Harry Dean Stanton or someone else who could do a similar voice and something fell through where they didn't get the voice actor. It was for only this one part. And I think maybe what happened is they just ran out of time and they had to ship it out on the audio version because it was coming out the same time as the paperback maybe or the hardcover, I mean. And maybe they just missed it. And Audible is using the same audio as probably the CDs. Mm -hmm. So it's just 
like that now. That's my best guess is that it was an accident or a circumstantial thing mm-hmm. where they just ran out of time because they couldn't get the voice actor. And my rev- my evidence for that would be this would have a different voice actor, presumably, than other sections. Yes. If nowhere else this character talks, maybe the reason it was skipped is because they didn't get the voice actor in time. Yeah, because the only other time like something isn't really voiced inside the book is earlier on talking about those independent uh, files mm-hmm. on, say, for example, like those sightings and what did they look like? Yeah. What were the sizes? But for the most part, the formatting there was all over the place. So yeah. I imagine that that was just like for the convenience to just cut out completely. And just because like the tone of it would slow things down. I don't think Carl Rod complaining about the lights and sounds and the fact that there's strange military men coming around this overall place or some shady men, I suppose. That felt more like the Carl Rod I know from Firewalk <laughs> of Me, this ranting and raving letter to the editor. Which, which I find very intriguing, I suppose, just yeah. because Carl Rod is in Deerwood Meadow. Well, and, um, more on that later. Yay. More on that later. Yay. But yeah, the mayor very quickly was able to buy into the idea, though, that this is part of Reagan's strategic defense initiative. They're going to do some weather forecasting stuff. Don't worry about it. We can't get into it anyway. Okay. And Mayor Dwayne's like, oh, hey. Okay. He just never, never poked a prodded it any further. I'm sure that... Carl Rod adjusted eventually. Do you think that he just like sits in the same spot because he's not really offending anybody? Like there's no real strong stances. They just like, yeah, he's always been the mayor. And he just sort of like sits there because I don't know anything like Mayor Milford does. Other than like. Describe that as his brother, as Dougie went further to the right conservatively, that says that Dwayne went further to the left liberally. And he, he might've been a little left of center then. But it it doesn't seem like Twin Peaks is some kind of socialist utopia. Yeah, I don't. I've never even seen him like behave in a left sense. I don't see him behave in general other than yelling. I don't see him behave incoherently. That's that's completely fair. <laughs> completely fair. I I really do enjoy the picture we get of Douglas Milford in the eighties. That you know, it's been so long since he was in Twin Peaks that by the time he returned, people really didn't have that negative reputation on him anymore as much. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they knew about his feuding with his brother, but for the most part, he was just known as this rich eccentric guy Mm -hmm. who would drive around in antique British racing cars wearing scarfs, or as I wrote, scar. Wearing scarves. (laughs) Wearing scars. Goggles, racing caps, and gloves. And he just shows up in his old antique cars and his little getup, and he's just honk honk, just That's driving adorable. around. Adorable! It's adorable, and he's just the newspaper editor. <laughs> so he he has a great like cover up. Like you would never guess that this is this man. This is Richard Nixon co-conspirator, alien investigator man. What do they look like? Richard Nixon co-conspirator. They look like Men in Black. They look like <laughs> just like just like everywhere they go, they're inside of the suits. Where go the watch shades. the movie Will Smith. <laughs> Not the movie Will Smith. The movie <laughs> Black. Starring no, Will Smith. What's the movie? Will Smith. Oh, man. Man. Yeah, no one knew where his fortune came from or how he'd managed to hang on to it through four divorces, but mm-hmm. man, they knew he was wealthy, which goes to then explain Lana. We talked before in the last episode. It does seem likely that Lana could just easily have found out this man had wealth based on the way he lived mm-hmm. and his reputation within the town. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, there's there's the, the potential of secret agent. The secret agent, like the, I, it was something that caught me for the longest time when it came down to the series of Twin Peaks, and that was why in the first place with Dougie, unless like she was trying to get to Dwayne in some I was like, like the money. motivator. It's money. But uh, the, the money, like, like, yeah, the, money. like, usually, like, there'd be like, a nice through line, you know. You, you marry the and rich guy to get money. Not to That's mention, it. like, is, like, d- the mayor known for being especially wealthy? 
Like, I'm sure the mayor gets money, but out of, like, all the people inside of the town in which, like, it seems like I, there's, like, these larger warring factions. I don't factions. know. I think Maybe it's, like, the path of least resistance because they don't seem to be married. Well, but. I don't think it's necessarily has to be super wealthy, but it's someone that she can get to buy her things and do things for her. Mm. I think there's an appeal to that for people. Dick would sell his house for her. Yeah, he wouldn't throw away the competition for her, though. He didn't give her the win at the end. He has end. standards. He does have standards. Somewhere. Somewhere in his heart. <laughs> but but Lana's interesting here, and I, I, I like the tone that the book strikes because Major Briggs identifies the possibility that Lana is an agent, that yeah. she was sent by, like, Illuminati forces to kill Dougie, and that was the real reason she was here, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that fits. Yes. I think if you want to view Lana as a stealth agent, it fits. And the fact that she claimed to be 19 but was actually 25 is an excellent parallel to Josie, who also lied about her age when she married the older man. Yes. I feel like there's a there's a distinct parallel being drawn on purpose so that you can think that she's like Josie, and Josie also was being, I don't know if I really say sent. I think her and Eckert were more equitable terms, but <laughs> she was going there with the express purpose of killing her husband. Mm-hmm. You could argue Lana was doing the same, but you could just as easily argue that Lana got involved with Dougie for the money. Didn't expect him to literally die during intercourse. And the next morning he's just dead mm-hmm. and then inherited the money. And then once everything fell through, it's basically as soon as the check went through and cleared, yes. she immediately ditched. I, I also enjoy the fact that it makes it clear inside the book that Dougie has gone through multiple divorces, yet he still had a fair amount of wealth for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that like, if she tried to divorce or anything like that, like that could be a partial amount of money yeah. like for herself. But if you, we are to say that Lana is like the black widow sort of like situation of like this little spider that's like sneaking in and mm-hmm. trying to take it all. Hey, um, he has a way to make sure that he did, there's no way to, for this wealth to pass down anymore. Uh, hello, I'm Lana Milford. So, you know, in your heart of hearts, do you believe Lana purposefully killed Dougie? Yes or no? You really can't have much of him. I know you want to do a maybe somehow, but like either you think yes or you think no. It can't be Schrodinger's Lana <laughs> Milford. Like I say no. I personally do not think that she purposefully killed him. I think it's a fun fan theory, though. I think it's the hardest part about it is that it's compelling on both ends. Mm-hmm. But mostly I'm lean on yes because... If you had to target wealthy people, why go on to two of the most, like, where the eyes would be family? I think, again, Dougie... Like, because she later on, like, instead of going into the middle of this town, and maybe she funds her efforts to do, like, to get where she goes next, but yeah. she goes to someone who's much more clearly has the wealth and just tries to enact a plan against that individual later on. The fact that she's in the middle of nowhere with wealthy old men, maybe it was an easy target to get to that point, but I still can't help but be still a little suspicious. I think that Dougie's an easy target. Dougie's an easy target. So I think it's just the idea that this is a man who is known to rush quickly into marriages. He's known to spend his money and have money lavishly. Mm. I think he's an easy target to latch onto. Now, why she's there, what she's doing, it's uncertain. All we really know is she has a Georgian license plate. Yeah. She's from Georgia, the state. Literally the opposite end of the country. But she also could have just been running away from something. People go places. People they, move. They do. 
Maybe. I don't know. I, I I think it's funnier if she's not an assassin because then that means that after this life of espionage, intrigue, and secrecy that Dougie Milford lived, that's how he died. Is just <laughs> just that. Just there's no big. I think that's funny. Mm. It's funnier that he would be undone this way rather than assassinated. <laughs> um, so I personally prefer to think it wasn't an assassination. Fair. Uh, I and also I gotta laugh the newspaper clipping that we see in the book. Announced his death with the headline, he died with his boots on. Again, he's the editor uh, of this newspaper. He's the editor of this newspaper. He was the editor of he this died. newspaper. He died. They immediately I don't put think that he's article. He's to the job the next day. No, and it's right above a cutoff article right below it that's about donut eating. So it's just this, like, it's on the front page, sure, but it's he died with his boots on. It's not like, you know, uh, a very mournful, sincere Douglas Milford. 80 something, you know, has passed or something. No, it's like he, he went out, man. And it's just, it's, it's just a funny tone to set. Whoever, whoever got that article, I think knew him, not knew him with a capital K, but knew him with a lowercase K. You know what I'm saying? No, I thought the capitalized K would be the big emphasis. I think he, he knows the, whoever wrote that, I think believe, I believe they know the Douglas Milford would get a sense of humor out of it. They just don't realize the force of nature they're writing about. <laughs> I think that they got the humor of the guy though. And I think, I think uh, I'd like to believe Dougie would enjoy that headline. Okay. So the, uh, the last thing with Lana, we do have to at least acknowledge, right? And I want your thoughts on this. It is implied that she dated Donald Trump. So I want to know what you think of that. It's, it's phrased that she dated a bizarrely quaffed real estate mogul in the 80s. Who's bizarrely quaffed real estate mogul? Is there not more than one? I have seen a lot of people when this book came out talking about it being most likely Donald Trump. Okay. It's, if it was going to be a specific person, it would be him. This book released in 2017, I believe, when during the Trump presidency, it was being written during Trump's first, well, currently as of recording only presidency in the United States. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that ages. But uh, I I think it is meant to be him. I really do. <laughs> Which implies that Lana Milford had been involved in Don with Donald Trump. What do you think of that? I think that it's the same theme that we've been seeing with Lana Milford this whole time. And I think that overall it was an action that just maybe happened uh, the dialogue enough is not enough for me to say it's cemented down and if it is it's the bizarrely it's 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 the phrasing it's, like, the it's someone with a weird hair going on like that that that's what and again in the 80s trump was huge for and, that. and maybe that will be the case but hearing i i, I think it's just to not try to get too far into uh attention of politics there's just been so much overload. This is a political book. It's a political book. But what I'm saying is that from the politics of our modern day, I've heard Trump's name blasted on all cylinders so much that I get exhausted. I understand. Just hearing it. I'm just saying I think it's in the book. Like it, like it feels like actively a light switch has been turned off in the back of my head because it's just tired. Of Trump. Yeah. That is. Apparently Lana Milford was at some point too, because then she went on to go marry a hedge fund manager. <laughs> Good for her. Good for Good Lana. For I, I like the hedge fund manager. Got the money, baby. I, uh, <laughs> I also really enjoy here. 
the way it's worded that Lana stayed in Twin Peaks for about six months after Dougie's death and, quote, after giving emotional support and comfort to the grieving mayor. I just, I just love the phrasing there. <laughs> she certainly did, didn't she? Mm. Certainly did. I don't know how much emotional support Lana Milford can give me, but you know what can give me emotional support? Cats? A log. A log. a log, a singular log is more comforting than any cat. And I'm saying that while looking at my cat as she looks away. A log wouldn't look away from me, Khalil. Robert Jacoby praises Margaret Lannerman in his editorial. As a reminder, because we haven't spoken about him in a while, and Jacoby is a, such a charged name. Robert Jacoby is the brother of the Dr. Jacoby that we know. Yep. The one who works on the papers. Yep. Editorial, yep. Editor, yeah. And his goal, as he says, is to set the record straight about Margaret Lannerman. As people commonly know her as the log lady, he feels that people jeer, they make comments, they make assumptions, and a lot of people are too young in their generation to really know her before the log, to know what she was like as a person before she started carrying the log around and the story started to become rumors and started to become disgusting. The log lady is sometimes disgusting. She literally puts this pitch in the yeah, middle of my diner. Yeah, he didn't mention that in there. He just said you, she shows up at the diner. He didn't mention what she does. <laughs> Regardless, it seems like this piece is starting to show, like, common perceptions as opposed towards who the log lady truly was. I think it's a really interesting situation where the log lady probably started, for the most part, as a joke in the pilot episode. Like, she's not in the show that much, and when she is, it's mostly the oddity of, like, who's the lady with the log? We call her the log lady, and that's about it. She's not really a deep character. I would believe that... It, I'm not saying, like, the log lady that we know of her now would be that same character, but I'm also looking through, like, the uh, some of the past David Lynch catalog pre-Twin Peaks, and I'm thinking to myself, like, if you had to give a few, like, maybe, like, strange quotes and strange overall words to one entity... Uh, the person who happens to wander around only known as the log lady might be a potential avenue. I'm saying that maybe it wasn't completely out of the question. No, I just think it's interesting what she morphed into because, it, again, for the most part, she's treated as kind of like a, a gag in early Twin Peaks material. Yes. Most of the depth we get out of her is through the intros that were added after the show had been finished. And we know from when we were doing our research with Eraserhead that this whole entire idea originated back in the 70s with... David Lynch having this idea for the show mm -hmm. with Catherine Coulson. And it's just the idea that this one-off show idea from the seventies with Catherine Coulson would manage to mutate into this one-off character gag in the show mm -hmm. for a pilot mm -hmm. that they didn't even know was going to get brought up as a show. And then for that to become such a hit that the log lady become iconic for them, for the log lady to then start in fire walk with me and in, the Secret Diary, taking on even more of a spiritual presence so that when you get to this book 25 years later, there's like this love letter to her. Mm. I mean, not that Robert Jacoby's literally in love with her per se, but it's more of like this sort of praising of her personality, her character, a celebration of her. Yes. And it's, again, I think this book at times tries to go back to some of the things that were a bit cruder in the original show. And so instead of making the log lady this joke, it's like, nah, man, she's like the best. She's like the best from someone who deeply respects her at the end of his life, like recognition of the end. As At the end of the column, Robert Jacoby says that he is dying, and he says that it's true that in life, as time goes on, it's like water slipping through our hands. And he writes this as sort of a way it feels to 
finalize and end his career as a newspaper editor, but also it's kind of his legacy and like one last thing he wants to do. He does admit that he regrets not having wrote this earlier, but it seems like it was really important that this be his final thing to write. What a final thing to write too. And uh, like, I can't remember, did Dougie die by the time that this like was released or not? I don't know if the timeline's clear on that. Yeah. Uh, We know that Robert Jacoby died three weeks later after this editorial was published Mm -hmm. and Margaret speaks at that funeral, but Mm -hmm. I don't know beyond how that fits into the timeline. I'm assuming since we didn't really see Robert uh, and he was just hanging out in the background, maybe, maybe possibly with uh, Truman's brother, maybe that might be the case, but I'm just going to go forward and assume that there's still a respectable through line through someone such as Dougie that if you are on that sort of like good trusting inner circle of his like mm-hmm. th- this is like more than permissible especially since it seems the tone around the office is like hells yeah you died but you died to have sex yeah dougie i like the quote that robert jacoby says that storytellers don't run out of stories they just run out of time and he says it's someone else's job now and i'm kind of like i don't know who I don't know who's in charge of the Twin Peaks Gazette post anymore. It's it's unknown about it, but at the same time, it, the idea of legacy and those sort of musings, mm-hmm. it's a dialogue that coming from the Jacoby family, I can see. What did you think of Margaret's speech at the funeral? She continues to be someone that, it, it's very fitting for the family that she's speaking over, if you will. It, 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 there's a good reason why she can come forward and bring something that would I feel would resonate with the family and friends of Robert Jacoby, judging from the way that Robert overall writes in general. But most of all, she still comes off, even though there is something hopeful underneath some of the given words, there still is the recognition of the of just general dread to come into people's lives, speaking of these dark times, that... I would not traditionally bring the log lady to parties, I said. Well, this is not a party. It's a funeral. I know it is a funeral. And I think that her message is way more hopeful than it is despairing. She says that, you know, this is now. It'll never be again. There is change, but nothing is lost. There's a sort of temporality be at the live in the moment. She says dark times will come as night follows day, but trust and do not tremble in the face of the unknown. It will not remain unknown to you for long. Robert knows this now, and we all will in the sweet by and by. What I'm trying to say, though, as a little bit of humor for myself, is that the person who wants to party is the one who wrote for the death and call-off to Dougie Milford, more than it is the the more solemn nature from the log lady. She is someone that is giving off a sense of hope, but at the same time, it's further down the path than at this very moment. And I think that that makes... Margaret far more realistic and also someone I'm somewhat cautious on. What do you mean by further down the path? Is that what you said? What do yes, you further down the path, as if like recognizing that this moment is the dark, but there is a light be- at the end of this tunnel. Mm-hmm. And you don't like that? I'm still processing that, especially with everything that we have handled with the log lady and how she has spoken to some of these other characters later on. It, it, it more seems that this version of the log lady is able to let go of sadness and tragedy by the nature of accepting 
after acknowledging that these things pass and through the sort of long-term mindedness and peace within herself seems to be more resilient toward, or should I say more resilient against despairing over things. So it, it seems like she's saying like, don't, don't become fearful and angry and, and anxious about the things you do not know, even during these dark times because things will eventually pass and you will know too one day. It is something that is a lovely quote. It's something that's absolutely lovely and endearing and something to be said at a funeral would be, I think, very kind. The one point in which I don't feel as much hopefulness is mostly because we are talking about specifically the log lady, mm -hmm. the woman who ends up still giving off these very vague omens to people. The idea of, say, for example, not holding on to things, but she literally holds on to a piece of her husband every day and holds on to the overall woods as uh, more of a defender, but more kind of in the lookout sense to the environment around her. It almost seems like the log is her cross. The lock is her cross in one way, but if you want to take it into an additional recognition because she finds this log and specifically has a feeling from this log after mm -hmm. the death of her husband, I mean... There's a lot of ways you can interpret it. The, the, the big one that I want to like bring forward potentially is... Uh, Josie's a drawer knob. Yeah. That's a piece of wood. That's definitely one interpretation. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of different things we can do here, and I, and I do want to kind of bounce around them. Jacoby says that Margaret Lannerman is the sanest human being he's ever met. Mm -hmm. So Jacoby believes that Margaret Lannerman here, and again, now we know for sure, Coulson is the, the maiden name, according to this book, and then Lannerman's the marriage name. Yes. That she strikes Jacoby as incredibly in her, in her right mind. So if you believe Jacoby is a good judge of character, then you may also add that to a potential <laughs> argument in her favor. But yes. Jacoby is, again, questionable in his own ways, which we'll get to. It, it seems as though the book suggests that her experiences early on as a child, when she had the alien abduction scenario with Carl Rod, that changed her. That worked on her brain in certain ways. Yes. That Robert Jacoby felt that she remembered more than she would admit and it seemed to give her an air of maturity in the form that when he, they were in high school together, while they were all struggling through what he called the turbulence of adolescence, mm -hmm. she seemed unaffected, self-contained, observant, and utterly serious. So it seemed to have removed her innocence, but in replace of the innocence, it gave her a sort of peace and ability to distance herself and look at things more objectively. Mm -hmm. Call that a good or bad trait. I guess it depends on your perspective of adolescence and such, <laughs> because she seemed to have lost the childhood joy and optimism, but also at the same time did not give into the lows of that sort of time period as well, mm -hmm. from what we're told. And like you said, she kind of became sort of a protector of the nature. She studied forestry, would have worked for the Forest Service if they would have had jobs that were for women that weren't just secretarial. Mm. And Margaret's Align is something kind of an early feminist and obviously very much an environmentalist. Yep. Um, she got married to a local legend, basically a folk hero, yeah, compared to Paul Bunyan, of all people. <laughs> yep. Bigger than life. His name was literally short for Samson, which I thought was cute. <laughs> He's described as a third-generation woodsman who also loved poetry, and it was the first and last time Margaret fell in love. Where's my ex? It feels like that is the mm -hmm. very tone of this man. Yes, yes. 
with the scenario, we get a little bit of a play back to the death of Sam Lanterman in a little more specific detail than we've gotten in previous iterations of the story. We know now that he had rushed basically right away into the front lines when the fire became out of control in the forest. And this was right at the time of their marriage. Like it was like their wedding night, basically. Yeah. And Margaret kind of had this sense of knowing that it was going to happen, but she also knew she couldn't convince him to stay. Like when he was called to do his job, he was going to do his job. He was a firefighter essentially. And she just continued to do her work. Yes. And even the next day after she found out what had happened, she accepted it immediately, continued serving people breakfast. And when like it was brought up, like, you know, I'm sorry for her loss. She would kind of just smile and nod and move on. Um, Almost. It seems automatically very again, detached and distant, but then she went over to the location of the fire, found that log and it spoke to her basically. And she carried with it in her arms. Now, Note on the continuity. The book describes this as a piece of Douglas fir tree. However, the series, including the access guide as well, has always called it a ponderosa pine log. Mm -hmm. We are getting a retconning of the type of log. Yes. I think this was probably just a mistake. I think it's because Douglas fir trees are the ones most commonly talked about in Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. And I think Mark Frost got it confused. Otherwise, he might be doing it to insist the idea of multiple universes. How many? I just don't much, think it meaning it's meaningful of a difference. Otherwise. How much is uh, something that has been mistaken? Because this one was actually inside of an article. How much is mistaken by the overall writer? How much is going yeah. to be something in which like this is just a red herring? But how many times is it? If this is a close friend, this is a close friend he dearly respects. I think you would want to get his facts straight on that. <laughs> I I don't know. I I like to believe that Robert Jacoby would have got that right. Is I guess what I would say. Okay. But, but her reaction does give off a sense of calm that can be a little unnerving because she went through a tragic, horrific incident that even as Jaco- Robert Jacoby notes would like, mm-hmm. you know, really hurt someone. And Margaret never showed the outward signs of that. She didn't show the signs of mourning and loss. Robert Jacoby puts, quote, grief can lead to madness, but it can also lead to clarity. It doesn't matter whether it comes to you in the form of a burning bush, a lamp by the side of the road, or a voice from a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. What matters is whether or not you listen. And then, of course, you have to act on it. There's a lot of ways you can interpret the log scenario. There is one possibility, like you said, that, again, transmutation, that the soul of her dead husband went into the log. Mm -hmm. And that is what she hears. She carries around her dead husband in the log. As one does. As one does. <laughs> and that, therefore, it is literally communicating to her as the soul of her husband. Soul of her husband or something that is associated with her husband. If we want to take respect the twin- that, like, this overall great legend, someone who was overall looked up and respected right. to, maybe by extension looking up and respecting the log and whatever it has to get forward. So it's one just is literal, essence. one is metaphorical. Yeah. You can take a literal reading or a metaphorical reading. And if we filter it through sort of the thematic motif sort of lenses of Twin Peaks... You've got the idea that wood is a conductor of fire the same way that you might have like a wire or a cord being a conductor of electricity. So if the soul is in some way linked to the fire or electricity, there is the idea that the wood could carry the spirit through the way that the wood would carry a fire. There is something to that potentially. There's also the element, if you take a non-supernatural route, that I think even maybe Jacoby would jump in to say that this is a coping mechanism for her that it's carrying a piece of her husband, again, metaphorically, 
uh, forward. And it's, again, maybe her cross to bear, her albatross to bear, something to carry with that symbolizes the weight, but it's something tangible and it makes it more real to her, perhaps. So there is maybe a psychological component, too, of carrying around the piece of the log as a way to deal with and cope with the trauma. Because, again, she doesn't show signs of having to go through the grieving process the way that most people do. So it's maybe that this log was a form of displacing those feelings onto an object? Possibly. What makes you so nervous about the log lady or or generally wary of her? Mostly because of what scenarios she usually gets involved with, what sort of things happen inside of her lifestyle, and the entities that are oftentimes affiliated with those independent parts. For the most part, we do not see active connections as much through someone such as Major Briggs, who we know to have those triangles. But as far as the log lady, if we are to interpret those triangles, if we are to interpret the fact that she lost the love of her wife's lost the love of her life after an overall wedding had occurred deep within a fire, which intrinsically has been involved with some of the worst things that happen mm-hmm. inside of Twin Peaks and fire to be walked alongside with. The fact that she is inherently carrying a log and a lot of the associations she has are against fire in many respects. There's so much that falls onto the log lady's plate that it almost makes me nervous or kind of cautious on what sort of lifestyle the log lady lives, how she lives, how she's able to handle life outside, and whether or not forces are maliciously even playing with her. Who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. that whole entire thing with her overall husband was a Book of Job-style situation where uh, she ended up losing something that ends up sort of testing her faith. The involvement of Margaret at the end of season two is also curious where she shows up almost on cue again with the jar. The idea is that, quote unquote, the log lady stole Pete's truck, that of all the people, Wyndham Earl chose to dress up as the log lady. There's things you can tease out of that for sure. Margaret's a very believable character to me in the sense that she's another example of the town's inability to help people that there is no community resource to aid. Margaret lost her future, essentially. Uh, She lost half of her life, essentially, in that fire. She lost a path. She lost her future in the sense that she was already planning to be with this person, go in this house, all these things that they had built together, the future that they had crafted was gone. She lost that future. She lost that path is what I'm trying to emphasize because a lot of her life from what it seemed to be seems to be on the same path that she has now in which she is still doing very much the same actions he's had before her husband. It seems for the most part her husband was a potential changing factor that was then subsequently dealt with in a way, which makes me very curious on whether or not that may have been intentional of the wood, if you will. My my, my statement still stands. I yeah. feel that she lost the future that she'd been preparing for, and the rest of her life throughout the next remaining decades, she's a shell of that. She's an echo of that. And it doesn't feel to me like she ever crafted a new future for herself or really set apart a new path. So to lose that and to lose this significant part of her life, it doesn't feel like this is something that either the town's people, the 
Bookhouse Boys. The resources at their disposal were in any way equipped to help. She's another victim of this area and of circumstance that ultimately is a tragic figure. And I, and I don't know what or what could have been done because I remember when we we're talking about the scenario with Margaret in the secret diary of Laura Palmer and how Margaret had been unable to help Laura. I think it makes a lot more sense in the context that it's not that Margaret Lannerman was in some way negligent of her duties to help Laura more so that I don't know if Margaret would know how to help Laura when no one helped Margaret. Mm. What resource came for Margaret when fire consumed her life? Nothing. And I think the best thing Margaret could do was warn Laura, like she did outside of the roadhouse, that when a fire starts like this, it can consume everything. Mm -hmm. Because Margaret lived that. It wasn't just a bad dream. It's been her life. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that context, I'm a little more open to the idea that I don't think Margaret could have done much for Laura. I think Margaret's been in healing her entire life. She's been in that trauma, and I don't know if she's ever been able to get out of that, so I don't know what she could give Laura either. Yeah, and as far as when she's speaking out to Laura, we kind of have to deal with a little bit more mysticism of recognizing the situation. Elsewise, A, why is Margaret even there in the first place? But also, B, like we might have to believe the log actually might compel her towards that general direction. Elsewise, how does she know so much about Laura Palmer at the time? There's also the it's, dreams. The dreams. There's also the dreams. But if someone said that they saw into their dreams and they wanted to warn you about a great fire and they came out of nowhere, what if you were wrong? <laughs> yeah, you get got to have got to have perfect confidence. <laughs> Margaret is someone that may be able to through those dreams interpret that. Laura is the same as potentially her husband, where she can only give potentially a warning. I almost am curious on whether or not she holds a similar regret, or even a regret in general, that she might hold on to to Laura as with her husband, if you will. If like Afterward? Afterwards, yes. You never know. I don't think we have any indications much either way. No. And it's, again, another character like Sarah Palmer that we don't know where their mind is when they're left alone. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Because the best we get is that, again, Hawk knows where she lives for both Sarah and for Margaret. Mm -hmm. But I don't get the sense that Hawk necessarily <laughs> goes to either one of them. There's also a curious humor in the sense of, like, again, fighting a fire, if you will. Fighting a fire one way or another. Right. The fact that Margaret's husband, a very accomplished firefighter, it went out and, in a way, as off as, like, the statement is on its own, the fire won. Yeah. <laughs> the fire won. Similar to how Twin Peaks in general ends as well. In but a you way, still have the fire to fight. won. And that's the hard part. Fight. You still have to fight. And what do you say What do you say about the fact that the fire keeps winning? Mm -hmm. What is your other option other than to keep fighting? I think that's the darkness that Briggs faced as well. Mm -hmm. Now, Sam Stanley, is he winning? Did Sam Stanley win? Did Sam, say Sam Stanley win what? Lottery or something? Life. Life? Just life in general? Yeah. Sam, Stanley, Sam Stanley seems to have a job at the end of the day. Does he? What kind of job? Like he, he does the FBI thing. He no. Works the going cold. No record of that. No record of the, No, go, gods. Yeah. Is so he like listed amongst the agents on the report, though? Yeah, from years ago in 1991, 1992. He is... There is a that he was put on administrative leave after an unspecified breakdown possibly related to alcoholism. 
and that there's no record of him returning to active duty. Alcoholism. Potentially. So when Agent TP reads this in 2016, for the last 25-ish years, there's been no evidence of him having any job with the FBI. We do not know where he went. Isn't that just great? Isn't that just wonderful? I assumed that, that when Sam Stanley was mentioned, you would zoom in on him. No, I didn't. Uh, like, I was looking at the list, and I think at that point, like, there was a lot of things going inside my head at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, this seems to be, like, an interesting closure point. This seems like little bits of ear. But no, Sam Stanley just kind of, like, being shoveled off into the corner, potentially, especially with, like, the reference to everyone we know and love yeah. along the way. If... Like, Sam Stanley didn't seem like the type of person in which, like, that was his first job amongst the FBI he for the... He did seem case. like a, more of a rookie than Desmond by comparison. Look, a little rookie than Desmond, but at the same time, between, like, how Cooper talks about him and how he ended up... Talks about him not having a, a job on the ball, so he has a history of not being great. <laughs> so, I, well, Regardless, a history nonetheless. Like, it didn't seem like any of this <laughs> I, was I, his first time I on the record. I don't get your point. I, I think that this case broke him. I think that this case broke him. And I think that, you know, it says it possibly related to alcoholism. I don't know where that source is coming from in terms of the fiction. Mm -hmm. But I think alcoholism is a nice way to put it. If someone turns to drinking because their agent friend just got done abducted by alien supernatural demons. <laughs> so I, I more think it's that this case broke him and whatever happened there got to him. Maybe he started drinking to cover it. But I'm more thinking that he was lost in a different way than Desmond, in a different way to Jeffries, he's lost in our physical world, but he was someone that was not able to cope, I don't think. I don't I don't think he can just end right there, judging from the Sam Stanley, the very inquisitive individual that we saw. Like if we are Sometimes you ask questions you can't handle the answers to. You can't handle the answers to, but did he get the answers? I don't know if he like, got I don't know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Like but whatever he, whatever he got to him, he was no longer able to function. He had a breakdown and was never with the FBI again. Now imagine, just like the person who wouldn't stop asking questions, ended up sort of like pursuing, like trying to get this case solved, worked alongside with Chet Desmond, and the one piece of questioning mm -hmm. he refused to answer in like both instances that Blue Rose was sort of like brought up to have Chet Desmond then disappear, that's... You should go tell Mark Frost that, because that's what he Mark wrote Frost. in the book. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I'm not denying that for Mark Frost. I'm trying to look into the head of Sam Stanley for the respects that... Imagine someone who's super hyper-fixated on something ends up, that guy ends up dying off, and then what are you left with then? You have cases that you're going ahead. I feel like something would eat at Sam Stanley enough. I think it ate him. <laughs> exactly, he, was he got completely consumed. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think there was enough in him to really continue with this. And that, that's the best I can offer because that doesn't give us much information. It gives us something of an ending for the character, but not much more than that. Also note here that the series and film state that Deer Meadow is in the southwest corner of Washington, whereas in the book it is only one county west of Twin Peaks, hence Carl Rod's association with the town mm -hmm. and Carl Rod being able to complain about the Major Briggs construction. Mm -hmm. This is a change. Um, what do you think about it? What do you think about Deer Meadow suddenly 
being moved to a different part of the state to be closer than Twin Peaks. <laughs> we know Twin Peaks is like a magnet for things. We didn't realize it moved whole entire towns. <laughs> I was unaware about how close Deer Meadow would even be in the first place relative to Twin Peaks. As far as when we were literally driving through Washington, if you will, there were small towns that we ended up connecting to as we were passing by from place to place. Like, we were inside of Snoqualmie for a, a little bit, but it would quickly transition to what would be recognized as different portions of that place. I forget yeah. some of the names. Like North Bend. Yeah, like I, know what Bend, you're, I know what so. you're getting at. So to have something that continues a little bit down the road, like from it went from remember, being It went from being like a couple hours away to being, you know, a short drive away, basically. Yeah, I wasn't too affected just because I didn't recall the distance being mentioned in the past. Mm -hmm. But as far as between a few hours and not too necessarily far, from Twin Peaks, it's something that I'm not too bothered with. It's either A, potential red herring, B, a sense of retcon, or C, an error in which we should keep our eyes out on. So what does this do in a general sense of an impact? Well, at that point, like it, I'm surprised that no one really talks about Deer Meadows assholes as much, I suppose, just mm -hmm. because I imagine like word would get out. It moves anti-Twin Peaks to right next door to Twin Peaks. It's a, it's the other peak. <laughs> I, I don't like this change. Okay. Um, if I look at it as a parallel universe thing, I'm like, okay, whatever. But as far as what it does to the fiction, it makes things smaller. It doesn't help. Like all it does for me is it tells me that Deer Meadow is right next door to Twin Peaks. Therefore, what happened with Teresa Banks was right next door and therefore Carl Rod's able to be utilized for the plot more. It, it just feels like a more of a convenience than anything else. Okay. I had no problem with Leland driving a couple hours to the other part of the state for seeing this sex worker. It made sense that he would do it away from his town. Yeah. If it's just a county over and it's not very far, to the extent that Carl Rod is interchangeable where he lives, <laughs> I, I think it kind of lessens things. I just don't think it helps. Okay. I don't see many benefits from this, is, is I guess the overall takeaway. And mm. it's one of those, if it ain't broke, why, why change it? Why fix it kind of things? <laughs> I, um, I think having anti-Twin Peaks far away, but within the same state is enough. I, I Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit... I, I'm a little bit confused about the rationality behind this particular choice. Very and I well. would suspect a lot of it is that purposeful decision to use Carl Rod more. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where a lot of it stemmed from. Cause otherwise there's not really anyone else in this book from deer meadow that we would matter where the town is located, mm -hmm. but to have Carl Rod having had his roots in twin peaks, it means that he only went a short distance when he started his trailer park. He didn't actually uplift his entire life. He just basically moved a little bit further away. He could still visit his friends and family if he wants to. <laughs> I don't know. And even then, it's it's still not that big of a deal because if it is just the western part of the state versus more central part of the state, it's not that big of a difference. Like, he could still go visit Twin Peaks if he wanted to. It's still somewhat of a difference. It's somewhat like, of a difference, someone but... who drove through the mountains, like, just a little bit down the state is still a little bit of a topsy-turvy, move-around-y situation. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little... I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit jumbled on that. <laughs> Last major character that is covered in this section, I think you and I both quite enjoyed the coverage of this character, is Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, who previously had been talked about in part two with his ayahuascan experiences. Yes. I really enjoy the way that the Dr. Jacoby section opens up. We get this sort of scene being set of Jacoby sitting at Hanalei Bay. He talks about this is where his mother's ashes were scattered. 
and he's about to scatter some of his brothers. And it opens with that sort of setting. And it ends with him, after going through all these different emotional moments and reflections, uh, it ends with him saying he's going to go scatter his brother's ashes now and bury him. I think that it sets this really nice personal tone that, you know, if we're thinking of other people that have written in the stories, it's closer to like Hawks more transparently conversational element, but Jacoby feels a sort of heaviness in this conversation. It is not casual by any means. And it is a statement that he's willing to put out there in which he does acknowledge that he takes any and all blame for what happened to Laura. Like mm-hmm. he, he acknowledges that Leland actually killed Laura, but he takes full blame to the point of even saying like, look, I know you might take my license that's what the case is. That's what the case is. He's not hiding or running. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned before that you really liked the just Jacoby part. I can't remember the way you phrased it, but it seemed like you liked it. Uh, what stood out to you about this particular section? It's the fact that overall, this is far different from the Jacoby that we're usually used to be used to seeing, if you will. There's hardly any self-reflection, mostly just self-indulgence whenever it comes to Jacoby. Just because Jacoby feels that Jacoby can see things so clearly, it's likely less of the overall glasses, but more so what the glasses represent, despite wanting to put them on someone else's face. Feels like less of an act? Is Mm -hmm. that what you're saying? It's less of a pedestal he's put himself on. There's there's some ego with this guy. I mean, it, it... He writes about how he'd spent time with, you know, authentic native people that left him bored to death with garden variety neurosis of modern Americans. It it seems like he became so disillusioned with modern American small town life that he looked at people as more symptoms of a culture rather than as real people. And I think along with it, he thought he was smarter than everyone. I think he thought he was better than everyone. And... It it kind of makes me wonder, you know, how much of the way Jacoby was acting in the show around other people was his real genuine actions or more of that trying to almost play around with people's responses. I think when he was talking to Cooper in the cemetery, telling Cooper he doesn't really care for these people, I think he was being honest. And that's the thing that's closest in tone to what this letter is, is that when, uh, when he talked to Cooper at the cemetery. But... I think that it also opens the door to a lot of his other behavior that we've in the past kind of looked at as questionable is how much of that itself is an act. It's, it's kind of weird because it feels like the book in some ways is trying to make him more sympathetic. Jacoby admits his faults, but also it implies or outright states that in this version of events, Laura's 18 at the time where she first starts working with Jacoby or signing up for Jacoby. So she would be a legal adult, which makes a lot of the sexual innuendo still inappropriate from a professional capacity and still inappropriate from a lot of other elements of what she's going through. But it changes fundamentally, I think, the exact nature of what he's doing. Because when we watched the show, you and I both kind of went back and forth without, I think, ever reaching a full answer, whether we believe Jacoby had in fact slept with Laura Palmer. And if so, again, she would have been a 17-year-old in the show's timeline, in the show's events, that would have meant that he was taking advantage of his client who was also underage. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be the most damning of all the mistakes he's ever made. This version makes it seem like he loved Laura Palmer but not in a 
sexual way. At least that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. And also, again, she's 18. But, like, I guess I'm curious, Professor, when you're reading this, how do you think Jacoby actually felt about Laura? I think that for now, this is the tone of one specific instance where he's looking back in mourning. Unfortunately, like, whenever, like, say, for example, if one is to vent inside their writings, I don't think that one thing is going to be too far compelled, depending on the person, I suppose, but how horny they were for them at the time. So as far as the action of just, like, describing this individual who is now long gone, who he's seen the impact of the family, that time has now passed, if there was a sense of horniness behind it that was seen behind rubbing the tie, if you will, that's not in his head at the moment. In inside of his head at the moment, in the time of the writing of this, happens to be someone who is at a loss, someone who has known loss, and someone whose outlook on life has been shaken thanks to Laura Palmer and her involvement in his life. Mm -hmm. And upon that shaky foundation, he's able to find something that humbles him down from his overall stance of being this individual that sees things better than anyone else that knows the overall what's the point matter of all these sort of situations going on out here on how there's no way that he can actually fix these overall things because these issues are bigger than him and his singular appointments whatever has thrown him down and whatever he has tried to stand up and retaliate as just a form of screaming in the chaos has now quieted down into a bit of a murmur and realizing what in turn his actions and his perspective has done to the world outside of him. I don't know if he's ever spoken about any other patient the way that he's spoken about Laura Palmer and the family that he's affected. So why Laura? That's the best question of all. Why Thanks. Laura? Thank you. I why, really was proud of that one. Why Laura is a question that you can place literally in any point in Twin Peaks mm. for any character, for any motivation. Laura Palmer is emphasized, sure, in this prom queen. I don't know status. if Catherine ever did anything because of Laura Palmer. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Catherine found out Laura Palmer died and didn't have any reaction. For anyone who says the word <laughs> Laura Palmer from their lips, because I don't think that she's ever even mentioned the girl. No, anyone that fair. has had Laura Palmer exit their lips, there's apparently been some sort of pull and give and take. <laughs> That may be the greater interest of whatever this lodge is. Why Laura Palmer for Dr. Jacoby likely is because she already was a person of influence to everyone outside her. So it's less to do with Jacoby and more to do with who Laura was. Yes. Because that's the question. You know, it could also be both. I think it's probably both. But, you know, is the effect because of who Laura was or who Jacoby was? Yeah, I think think it's, it's Laura having that effect on people that seems to be outside of her control. Mm-hmm. But then also I think it's in Jacoby speaking to someone. See, it's hard. Cause like on one hand, I want to say it's speaking to someone from that younger mindset who isn't as entrapped by modern society. And because of Laura's disposition, whether he knew it factually or maybe just sensed it, she wasn't as reverent for the morals of her society. If anything, because of her associations with people like Ronette and Leo and Jacques, she seemed to run a lot counter to the sensibilities of her culture around her. Mm -hmm. Maybe he sensed that, but I also think, and this might be the most 
is that maybe he sensed that she was a searcher, that she was looking for something the way he might have been looking for something. Because in Johnny, he worked with someone who was, again, younger in mentality and probably younger in age when he first started working with him, maybe. But then also someone who was outside of society. But I think the difference between Johnny maybe and Laura is that Johnny is content and at peace, you know, outside of occasional emotional disruptions. Whereas Laura is someone who is lacking, who's searching, who's trying to figure things out. And maybe that's what stirs Jacoby in a way as well. But on the same token of that, people lacking and people searching, Jacoby's literally a psychiatrist. If there's one thing that I imagine would come up a few times are people lacking and searching and likely seeking an answer by paying the psychiatrist. In the way that Laura is? In the way that Laura is? What way is Laura Spiritual. doing Spiritual. Spiritual. That's what I, that's the only thing I could think about. Like, I'm trying to figure out if there would be any reason why Laura would have that pull on him the way that other patients haven't, and that's the best I'm able to come up with other than her magnetism. Mm-hmm. Her her spiritual magnetism, which I, I don't know, I find that less interesting than the, than the psychological <laughs> reasons, but... I also want to note, too, that this is our first, I think, first, confirmation that the fact that Leland killed Laura and Maddie is official, that people in Twin Peaks would know that, because Jacoby writes about that very matter-of-factly, that the facts of the case are that he killed Laura and Maddie, and it's also public that there was that sexual abuse that he blames himself for not catching, for not noticing. And he also, because he had front row seat to it, he knows that Jock was suffocated by Leland, but mm-hmm. that charges were never pressed. Another mm-hmm. one of those secrets that the law enforcement and order of society has not pushed. I understand that Jock's dead. I understand that Leland's dead. There's not really a sense of justice in that regard, but it does feel like because the Renault family has the reputation that they have, it's not as acknowledged publicly that Leland also did kill that person as well. They're just not a young woman that the town already loves. <laughs> it's a criminal, you know, so mm-hmm. it's someone they don't look up to as much. But um, it kind of it kind of is boggling in a way because now that, Le- you know, now that uh, it's confirmed that people in the town know Leland killed Laura and Maddie, it makes it all that more strange to me that we didn't get more interactions between characters who would have been affected by that realization so, like, most obviously it would be Donna and James. Mm-hmm. They, they were searching so ardently for who killed Laura. And then Maddie dies, and we barely get much of a reaction after this. James up and leaves, and I can about imagine why. Mm-hmm. If he knew what happened, I could about imagine why. But I don't sense out of Donna a real understanding or confrontation with this reality that the killer was Leland, and she had literally been in Leland's house with him alone like, the day Maddie got killed. Like, there was that moment where she could have been next. We don't ever see Donna wrestle with any guilt, any shock, any ramifications. And for that matter, we don't see anyone wrestle with it. Audrey doesn't seem to wrestle with it, despite the fact that her father was so close to Leland, and by proxy, she was. And obviously, Laura was close to her father, too, and her father felt that way about her. So all these characters who we never saw react, they presumably, if we take this book to be canon... And just logically, it makes sense it would be that way. It was public knowledge that Leland was the killer, but we didn't see hardly anyone talk about it, react about it, heal from it. Mm -hmm. My question for you, Professor, do you think that was on purpose, that the writers were trying to make a statement about grief that no one talks about it? 
Or do you think like they just didn't know what to do and straight up didn't do it? I had for the uh, latter more than the former. Uh, though th with the former, there is something compelling to come from the nature of Twin Peaks that is discussed throughout the media itself. People such as Truman overall making commentary of the darkness out there that they have to fend for themselves, but at the same time, the constant actions of just trying to keep this overall calm status quo and just focus on the better things before some Dale Cooper messes things up. This is something that we've spoken about time and time again, and to have literally the town react this way because the more that they can end up falling into this, the more that they can end up sinking into the end of grief, I would say that it complicates things even more for that end of Laura Palmer, that wanting desperately to just move past it and just desperately want to try to claw their way back to that Twin Peaks that they remember. Like, forgetting about that, there's something compelling there. But do I truly actually believe that there just wasn't an answer during the point of production on how much they want to lean into that or what scenes would actually work out with that as opposed to what others might interact and just have a harder time with? With the soap opera nature, sure, we can have something very dramatic and uh, overall strange and exciting happening off into this corner. But, but given the rest of season two got sillier right after that point. It got sillier, but also the tone of an absolute grief. We've mm -hmm. seen it in small pockets, but not to the extent that I think would be appropriate for something such as a tragedy caused by Leland Palmer that was this heavy. It's one thing to show supernatural demon possession murder on television, mm -hmm. let alone, I think, the different reality of trying to portray long-term healing from trauma in a real grounded way. Yes. I don't think the show knew what to do with that. And to be fair, I don't know if any show on television was equipped to handle that kind of subject matter at the time. Mm -hmm. um, it just wasn't done very much. And I do think it's a weakness of the show in a certain respect. I think it's a flaw of the show that characters like Sarah Palmer just got straight up ignored. And I think you mentioned before, and if not, I'm, I'm bringing it up out of my falsified memory here, that... Jacoby as a character kind of got dropped a little bit too, that he was going to be investigating Laura Palmer his whole life. And then we never really heard much about him talk about Laura Palmer, the rest of the show. Now we're getting a chance, but the show kind of didn't do much with Jacoby after that point, not it, in a serious way. It's because the, it was the tone that was conveyed. That was the expectation of the show. When someone says that they're going to be exploring something for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. that's going to be something in which, you would imagine they would have some physical involvement as investigations are continuing where someone is going to be digging and snooping into things. Well, the more subtle and the more, I would say, truer nature of struggling with something and looking into it for the rest of lives is more of the internal look, the mm -hmm. internal investigation, the internal what does this mean and that processes. I think that whenever this paper was released, given what have you, that this was a post point of Jacoby trying to meet with those battles through those overall conflicts that may very well continue to haunt him until he draws no more breath. But at the very least, this is the conflict that I think was the truth behind Jacoby's statement to Agent Cooper, where he's going to keep trying to work these things out in these emotions, though it's probably never going to end. Mm-hmm. 
I yeah, I just I don't think it's purposeful that the show ignored a lot of the trauma and grief. I think especially Donna's the most egregious case in the sense that after presumably learning that Leland had killed Laura and Maddie, Donna's next storyline, I think next storyline was her involvement with trying to figure out who her father was between Ben and Dr. Hayward. And it's such a soap opera like plot line where I'm like, (laughs) what happened to Donna's emotional response? Again, Harold just died. Like so many things that happened to Donna that I could understand the argument that she suppressed it all. And that's why it's not brought up. But I don't think that the show put the work in to convince me that's what the purpose of her silence was. It just felt like Donna kind of went on pause for a little bit and then resumed with a, with a storyline. I mean, we've seen like some of her antics with her father, if you will, that's more so just kind of like a, I would say, ex twin peaksing and accepting. Yeah, if you will, that maybe that carries off, or maybe those are just involved. Scenes I think we have to do the heavy lifting. We got to do some of the heavy lifting, <laughs> but is it impossible for me to believe that? No. But at the same time, like what we see by Donna by the end of that, though, with everything boiling over, yeah. like it it matches for at least the context for the final episode I, I where think, everything just pops. I think a useful thought experiment is to think about the characters who knew Laura or were connected in some way to Leland and how their lives are affected after the killer's revealed and Leland dies. Because again, the show doesn't make it clear that everyone knows Leland's the killer. But if Mm. we go by this book, it is public knowledge. I think someone like Ben, his transformation is pretty interesting because with Ben, we're led to believe that his civil war arc was largely as response to what happened with the mill and with Catherine and maybe even a little bit with Audrey. Obviously she had been kidnapped recently by Renault's and there was a whole plot line there, mm-hmm. but all of those things are enough to break a person. Absolutely. But then you add on to the situations that were going on with the mill and with Audrey, the additional weight that presumably right around the time that Ben got out of jail, he would have been confronted with the reality that the man that he had worked with for years had been a murderer who had assaulted his own daughter for years. And Ben, someone who keeps a photo of Laura, always around his desk, having a clear connection to Laura, what that would have done to his psychology to know that Leland was the killer. What that would have done to him, specifically, after almost losing Audrey in the way that it happened with Renault. I Is it hard to believe, then, that that would be part of his breakdown with the Civil War? I don't think so. I think that that matches up. It adds more reason why, again, James left town. So, I don't know. Tangent aside, I just think it's mind-blowing that this is the first confirmation we can really point to, unless we're missing something, that these were, in fact, things people could have known in the town, and just collectively everyone decided to ignore it. And that's where I think there's a sort of emotional honesty that I have to respect about at least Jacoby calling it out in Mm -hmm. himself and in the world around him. And it harkens back to Bobby Briggs a bit for me at the funeral who called out everyone like, you're all the reason Laura died and I am too. Mm -hmm. Like Bobby taking ownership, but also acknowledging no one did anything. We all knew she was in trouble and no one did anything. Again, they hid the fact that she was in trouble when she was alive. They pretended not to see it. And then when they found out who she was killed by with Leland, they pretended not to feel it. When she was alive and when she was dead, people did not acknowledge Laura Palmer. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some people like Jacoby who afterward at least began to. Mm -hmm. 
And Jacoby says that, you know, people are very quick to blame an individual or blame society, which is something he had done, and to distance themselves, to say it couldn't happen here. But he, throughout this writing, Jacoby emphasizes that people need to give in to their sadness, take it into their soul until it breaks them and remakes them. And I, I really think that that's an important message, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, every extreme can be dangerous. If someone wallows in sadness in a way that hurts them, no, I'm not recommending that. But do I think that the town of Twin Peaks needs to be yelled at a bit about not bottling up their emotions, but instead letting themselves feel grief, letting themselves process their emotion, stop blaming everyone else, stop ignoring it, just feel this? Because like he says, there's no lasting comfort to be found in avoiding pain. I think he's right about Twin Peaks. Like, I think he's on the nose about that. But where does that leave Jacoby now that effectively, by the end of this, even with this overall realization, even if like there's some growth and understanding for his overall pain, even if there's certain wants that he wants, at the end of the day, and especially after this overall letter, Mm -hmm. that's Twin Peaks. How's it changed? How has anything changed around him? He's... I don't think that his worldview has shifted enough other than him actively hurting aspects of the world around him. I don't think that anything's getting better or going to go better for Jacoby. What would you say would be the better approach? Like, what do you do? You know, if this isn't going to make a difference, what would? I don't think that there is a better approach. I do think that, though, he's living in still the worst result. I think that... One of one quote that I think I mentioned to you, I can't remember if it was on pod or off pod, is that you can do, and I don't think Jacoby has done everything right. You no. can do everything right and still fail. Mm-hmm. That is a human experience. Yeah. So in- I just think he's right. I think Jacoby, despite being a very flawed person, I think he's tapping into a sense of truth that this town and the people who knew Laura and Leland need to confront and accept and embrace and feel their pain. They need to, because otherwise that pain and suffering becomes very damaging. And especially in a series where pain and suffering is known to be the currency and food yep. of demons. Delicious. Just the I think the, I think the cure isn't to ignore it. And that's where like, I think back to Briggs, you know, Briggs saying that he felt fear for his own soul when he was confronted in the lodge. And at first my thought was, Oh no, Fear is the thing that opens the door. Fear is bad. That's what annihilates you. But I, I, I just take a step back and I'm like, no, because fear is human. I mean, it's rational to be afraid of that. I get that. It's whether or not it consumes you or whether or not you are willing to face it honestly and openly. So, or do you run? And then I think about Cooper in season two. That dude be running. <laughs> Cooper be running, panicking, unwilling to face it when it came down to it. Whereas I think Briggs did face it which by those overall words and just like judging what the black lodge is in the broadest of terms is it a question of is it the intensity of both these emotions or are the doors always open i mean fear and love are just human experiences they are and i think that they are involved with any sort of passionate response people have Mm -hmm. so to say that these are things that open the door if it's not the extreme and the lodge is just around us more, maybe it's just like worse as it gets more extreme. These are just the trials and tribulations that we must face, especially in the world that is corrupted around us. Mm-hmm. 
Um, good though that Jacoby did lose his license because he definitely deserved to lose his license. (laughs) Like regardless, regardless of how I might praise some of his ideas here, this is in my opinion, the best form of Jacoby we've seen in terms of morality. This is a Jacoby that has some good points. He seems to be standing up for some good things, Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't immediately cleanse him of his sins. Oh no, this doesn't one-to-one fit. But, but I do think though, this is the best sign of hope we have for Jacoby is that he is publicly acknowledging his flaws, publicly acknowledging where he thinks the evil is, but also not ignoring his own role, calling basically, Hey guys, if you think I should lose my license, do it. I understand. And acknowledging this within the scope of he's now burying his brother. He's at a time of low, low feeling and he's not running from it. This is not a Jacoby in which we are seeing that is the completely redeemed and everything is better now. Join our side, Vegeta. This is more so a Jacoby that we can close the book on. This is a Jacoby that has had time for himself. And though he has certain ambitions that if things go this way, he'll do that thing. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, kind of facing these demons and writing it out is something that I think does much better than it, I've seen anything else do for Jacoby at any point. Like, I, I I think that this is a good final chapter. So with a lot of this talk about final chapters and ending notes, I am kind of curious, going into the return and whatever the final dossier ends up being, do you think we are done with Jacoby, Margaret Lannerman, Depends if David. Lynch I guess those are the main two. To. I mean, Major Briggs' as actor has already passed away by that point, so yeah. you don't really know how that's going to go. But those are two characters you've mentioned this being final notes on. Yeah, uh, this is again. I'm looking forward to the next iteration to be David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Okay. Now, so you're not it, looking for continuity. I, I, it's not really looking for continuity. Not really. I'm just looking. For... I prepped you well. <laughs> I'm just looking for a moment to see these characters through different styles and colors of lenses. In this respect, unless you are the secret diary of Laura Palmer, all of these are just new lenses to look through as far as mm-hmm. these books are concerned. How much canonness that you want to derive from them. Canonicity. Exactly. <laughs> you can fe- feel free to grab away and enhance the experience that you want. But... I'm not going to go into the return with this book in mind other than a curiosity of comparison. Mm-hmm. If it's something that continues and is a little bit of a fun epilogue, additional final chapter, new chapter, rebooted chapter, whatever you want to do, that is, there's nothing I'm trying to carry over mm. to the return at this time. There's even pieces of me that is unsure on how much do I take the TV show and carry it over okay. to that end to Twin Peaks. You are going in with a radical mindset that I think will be very, very fun to <laughs> watch unfold. The last thing I have on here is continuity. Uh, less than last time. Last time was the big chunk of continuity concerns. But there are some to note. So with Robert Jacoby, he notes that on page 316, he first met the log lady in third grade and he was seated behind her. While on page 320, his funeral cards indicate he was born in May 1931. That would make him a 16-year-old third grader, since the log lady was in third grade in 1947, according to the book on page 142. Man, Jacoby. um... (laughs) Sucks to fail third grade that many times, doesn't it? (laughs) This is one where I think it's an error, 
And it's bad enough that I'm like, this should have been edited out. I think that it was... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it was a larger error, but I don't know whether or not it was this in the same book or like uh, contradicting from it's like the, the same book. It's the same book. I think he, the literally the age of Jacoby, Robert Jacoby, and the age yes. of Margaret Lannerman are different enough that he would be a sixteen-year-old third grader if he's telling. <laughs> and you can't you can't accidentally mess that up if you're I'm like man. I remember when I sat behind her in third grade and Margaret Lannerman's like scratching her head like you were in high school. So he was like, in there as a like a student teacher. Yeah, like, that's not uh, sitting. Behind Behind her, yeah, he was. <laughs> in one of those tiny little third grade desks. And that's As, where I. If he's sixteen during the time, yeah, just like uh, one of them. This is 16. one of those differences where I just think it's. I think it makes the book worse. I think it's it's incredibly small. Maybe you he's will, a liar. Maybe you will only notice this if you're like really digging into it. Yeah, but I think it's a flaw. I mm -hmm. I don't I can't spin this in a way that makes the book better. Jacobi's I just think a it's liar. it's an editing problem. <laughs> It also states that Robert Jacoby died in 1969 before Milford bought the Twin Peaks Gazette and changed its name to the Twin Peaks Post. But many articles Robert from Robert were written in the Post later, and he was stated to have died again on November 19th, 1986. You gotta stop dying, Robert. Like, it's really inconsiderate. That's that's crazy, right? So, like, died in 1969 before Milford <laughs> bought the Gazette and changed the name, but then also wrote later in 1986. <laughs> Professor, do you want to defend this, or...? It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more wild. Uh, it's one of those cases. Where I don't have page numbers. I'm just going off the Twin Peaks wiki yeah. for clarity. How much do you believe in like the crossing of alternate timelines? How much do you <laughs> want to go to a point where these are personal red herrings to like cause a ruptured foundation? Better. Like already there's some issues with the book as is. So to continue to wobble that sweet, sweet foundation. I just keep making more errors. Just spell everyone's <laughs> name wrong. Put everything wrong. I think that have president FDR that, that's in the nineties. Right? That's a question, right? Like how much, if you're trying to show a distrust and how yeah. much can you show to be incorrect inside your book? How far is too far? This is, this is because like, if it's a like self contradiction, it better have a good, like reason to exist. Uh, but this doesn't make any sense. Why anyone would lie about it so, or hide it. Like it doesn't, well, I would say it's to rupture a foundation potentially, but also my question There's is enough you, for my, that. <laughs> my question for you is that how do you feel about red herrings? They can be good. Mm -hmm. But if your entire book is made out of red herrings, it's starting <laughs> to smell a little fishy. <laughs> you catch my drift. Yum. It's too much. I have no problem with a red herring now and then, but I feel like this book at a certain point, I'm reaching for substance, mm -hmm. and I am finding air. <laughs> and You're that, finding that's fish. that's not a that's not a good thing. Get the fish. You and I have talked off-pod a little bit about this already, but the book states that Douglas Milford changed the name of the Twin Peaks Gazette to the Twin Peaks Post prior to when the series takes place. But in the show, it was still called the Twin Peaks Gazette. People audibly would say it was in the Gazette. Mm -hmm. Now, possible counter to this is that maybe still people called it the Gazette, even though it was literally the Post. Counter to that, the newspaper props seen in episodes 18, 23, and 26 say the Twin Peaks Post. So it's <laughs> it's so confusing. On the show, they called it the Gazette, but it was shown in props to be the Twin Peaks Post. Yeah. So that's weird. Well, Again, maybe they just called it the old name. They're not used to the name changing. It's something but then, that they called it for ages. You but know? then the version that was sold to the public as official merchandise. With interviews to the actors is called the Twin Peaks Gazette. Which the actors, emphasis underline, so, the actors. My understanding is that the Twin Peaks Post is the real newspaper in Twin Peaks at the time of the show. Yeah. They call it the Gazette because that's the old name. 
The Twin Peaks Gazette released in the 90s is an official product based on the Twin Peaks Post called the Twin Peaks Gazette. Likely because if they <laughs> called it the Twin Peaks Post and the people said on the show it's the Twin Peaks Gazette, then that might just kind of like, you know that sort of like point where you want to like plant some seeds because you want to potentially sell a product to people, so you want to make sure that they are actually yeah. catching it? Yes, the thing that you and I do every single they, day. But I don't believe this is ever on purpose. I think they just... I, they, I, they, I think marketing it could be a purpose. Uh, I think what happened is that they called it the Gazette and then realized later they called it two different things and they just went with the Gazette for the merchandise because <laughs> it's the one they said more. I don't think, I think what happened is they ended up saying Gazette more than Post. Mm -hmm. So they kept Gazette as the product, even though Post <laughs> was on the set. It's just, it's confusing. There are some timeline issues to be concerned about as well. Potentially concerned, depending on your disposition. Jacoby has moved to Hawaii on March 19th, but wrote a report on Ben's Civil War arc on March 22nd. He was supposedly not in Twin Peaks and moved by March 19th. How did he write the report? He wrote the report. It was supposed to come out later on, if you, you will, can try. and it got posted there. You can try, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> the book states that Douglas's wedding, they call him Douglas. Do you think that is like hot off the presses and is like, okay, we're going to write this Maybe. up. Get him out, get him out. Go, go, go. Well, run, Timmy, run. I would assume the date is when the report is dated. Oh, it's I not see. the date of receiving it. It's the date of writing it. Jacoby got lazy. He spent three days in Hawaii. He's like, oh, I better write that thing. <laughs> I, I got to fly back quickly. One moment. I don't know. <laughs> And, and again, I mentioned that the wiki calls him Douglas, which is fun. If I always say Dougie. I think sometimes I'll see Doug. I don't know, Douglas. Is, I, I can't. Uh, we mentioned this one before, but Dr. Jacoby states that Laura was 18 the day she began consulting him. But in reality, in the show, it says that she died at 17. The counter from the Twin Peaks wiki is that Laura might have lied about her age because if she's 18, she doesn't have to inform her parents where she's 17 she, that he does. So it's possible she lied about her age she was she was 17, he thought 18, etc. Mm -hmm. Also to note, the secret history of Twin Peaks has Jacoby stating that Laura began seeing him six months before her death, whereas the secret diary of Laura Palmer states that she began seeing him over a year prior. So was she with him for over a year or only six months? Depends on whether you take the secret history, which is known to be full of errors, <laughs> or the diary, which is not known to be full of errors. Or we just meet in the middle and call it nine months and we're good. We just compromise. One. One whole difference can make a whole baby. Anyway, the book states that Briggs received the Cooper, Cooper, Cooper message after Cooper solved Laura's murder while in the series, it was during the investigation. The counter argument is that the message might have been detected on two different occasions. I find that to be a really lame answer. That's probably <laughs> I, that's probably the best you could do is be like, yeah, there's just two messages that say Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. But it's like, it's kind of weird because yeah, the one that's described is verbatim the same one that happened during the investigation, not after the killer. It's That's a timeline one. To mm. me, that's an error. I, I, I don't know if it was on purpose or not. Mm. I think it isn't. I think it's just a mistake. Very well. What do you think? <laughs> no, I do agree. I do I, genuinely to feel as a I mistake. think he just got messed up on like when the Cooper Cooper thing happened. But anyway, last couple here relate to the archivist or the archivist or the archivist or whatever you want to call him, a.k.a. Major Briggs, talks about Douglas like Milford. Call, talks about <laughs> Milford with contempt when recounting the events of the 1940s. But starting on the page where he begins to talk about himself within the first person, as noted by TP, he talks about Milford fondly. This shift in tone and behavior regarding Milford might indicate a change of archivist. It is kind of curious because the way that he describes 
the way that the archivist character describes Dougie for the first like half of the book or so mm-hmm. is very cautionary, negative, whatever. And then as it gets on, and again, that narrator change happens. Again, Douglas is more of a positive figure. It does make you wonder, like, was Dougie writing those parts about himself and negatively because, one, negative self-esteem, aw, poor Dougie, or two, he was trying to distance himself, like, ha, they'll never believe I'm the archivist, Douglas Milford, if I write about Douglas Milford negatively. I mean, I feel like a little, maybe not in the same chin-stroking manner of being like, yes, no one will realize, but more so if you had to, like, work with a tactic, for one, when, like, Major Briggs is brought up from an archivist later on in the overall book, and Major Briggs is actually, write, like, writing, and it's, like, inside of this mm-hmm. little document, um, a quick way is just, like, just make a note of it and just keep moving on. The less you say, the less damning. But then the other end could be the contrarian end of feeling like you have an emotional stake on this individual, that you can say these aspects about them. Directs more so of a narrative focus that mm. could throw people off. In, in, a, in a positive way for a realm of secrecy he might have to be through. And honestly... As far as someone who might have a few things to say about himself, uh, I think that Dougie does fit into that overall realm in the first place. So, so Dougie was a little self-critical at certain points, you think, to purposefully? I think he, I, I think he could use it as a means of purpose, but mm-hmm. I also think that he's willing to just sort of like write himself off as okay. that. Fair enough. Uh, this is kind of related. The archivist constantly uses the uppercase I or Roman numeral looking I every time he should use the number one mm. indicating that his typewriter does not have this key. Although the common real world usage is to use a lowercase I since it is the exact same symbol or L again, it's typed. I can't tell what I'm reading. The archivist reveals to be Briggs and then put the picture of the typewriter, which has the number one key and starting on the next page with the transcript of his discussion with Milford, he uses the number one instead of any substitution. So the working hypothesis from the wiki is that this is, again, to indicate a change of archivist. That Douglas Milford typewriter had the one problem, mm-hmm. whereas Briggs's doesn't. It's com- Because when it goes to the first person I, the numeral one is used. It's very compelling, to say the least, especially with earlier on when I'm trying to figure out how this Roman numeral one and two is working off into this little corner, except when... I think when the number got inconsistent with, say, for example, Hank, but on that same token, the one with Roman numeral one and Roman numeral two for the book section Mm -hmm. was where the Cooper cipher was, like the sort of like the reflection that was where the books was. So wouldn't potentially if someone had knew more of the mythical goings on and had more stake in Cooper, wouldn't it make more sense for mm-hmm. say, for example, Briggs to be the one typing that section? That one, I unsure. I, th- I don't know if this book is a hundred percent put together perfectly. <laughs> I, I, I struggle. I really struggle because I, I know that putting negative opinions out on the internet is scary. And I also know that we're preaching to Twin Peaks audiences and Twin Peaks fans. If you love this book, I understand why you would feel that way. Thank you. There are very good things about this book. There are moments that I really quite enjoy. But I also feel like there's got to be other people out there who resonate with kind of my mixed emotions when I'm looking at all of this. And I, I don't know when all is said and done after you've gone through the return in the final dossier, what your thoughts will be on this book in hindsight. 
But I ask you, Professor, for for mercy and for understanding. Mm. Can you at least understand why I'm mixed on this book? Absolutely. Okay. That's nice. That's nice. Because I, I no. feel like I'm I, I feel like someone's gonna think that like I'm just a hater, but I legitimately love aspects of this book. I just think that there are things in the editing and things in the construction of this that I'm like, I don't think everything's on purpose. I don't think every mistake on here adds something. I think at a certain point when you have five pages in the Twin Peaks Wiki of errors, not all of them are productive. Not all of them are helpful. It can lead to a shaky foundation. And I get why that might be appealing. Mm -hmm. But when I'm constantly having to like double check if the, if someone's 16 or eight, in a timeline because of how screwed up it is. <laughs> you, we have made so many jokes on the show about what is time in Twin Peaks. Yes. You didn't know when we made those jokes what this book was going to do to time. No, not really. This is the most what is time in Twin Peaks version of Twin Peaks. <laughs> because otherwise, things have always been a little loopy. Like a little bit like, wow, season one only was like two weeks of time. That's crazy. I but this is like outwardly, we don't know when people are born, when they die, who their names are, what's going on. I mean, we had a little practice round from the Axis guy. But yeah, no, I do see where like things get more intense here. Again, whether it's intentional or Does not. Does it add or subtract? The, it you is know? the fun whirlpool of this overall book that I can see being hit or missed depending on the individual that reads through it. My wonderful and strange question of the week for you. I feel like you've answered it in part, but I want to see if there's anything else to mine out of you. <laughs> like I'm a Minecraft Steve. By all means. Now that you've read The Secret History of Twin Peaks, how has it affected your perspective going into the return and going into the final dossier? Going into this overall realm we're about to with everything that we're leaving behind, I feel that I'm able to gander the larger emotional tones of Twin Peaks and the possibilities of these stories. It's something in which, like, I have ideas of what I enjoy in the aspect of canon, but they still are very separate instances, which I would argue, like, despite the craziness of continuity, if we take away the idea of worrying too many things about dates or specifics of, like, where the character was here and there, the broad strokes are still very much apparent through the secret history that... I would be lying if I didn't say that I adored those broad strokes. They're the things that appeal so heavily to me between these overall asides with Margaret Lanterman, between the confusion with overall Truman's brother that we never really see, between the curiosities that come from the environments wherever we're being flung into, whether it is within Twin Peaks or wherever it is where Meriwether Lewis may go. And by extension, with the other Twin Peaks books, like, each of them had something fun to add to the table. It led us to these larger discussions. It led us to some overall shenanigans inside the podcast to talk about it things. It led like us this. to some of the longest episodes we've ever done. But, but still time that I adore. Going into Twin Peaks now, seeing that David Lynch is going to helmet... And seeing that there's going to be less involvement from the outside forces, it's a curiosity to me. It seems like a very large-scale project that's exciting from a perspective to see what this person will do from a tone. But it's also a little sad because there is a fair amount that I feel that 
is now going to be left behind. I don't foresee more Twin Peaks media coming after this. I don't foresee, especially as actors, unfortunately, have passed away mm -hmm. over the course of the years because that is just simply how time and life work. Even I, even just this past year of recording this podcast, it's it's been a lot. With the issues of conventions and legalities, like the usage of being able to make merch go through cons and so on, for the most part, a lot of Twin Peaks is leading to a conclusiveness that lives on in small ways through the people that are inspired to make their own works that we see so many references to things such as the Red Room, to fan works that are overall taking on these independent perspectives mm -hmm. that are like outright not being funded because elsewise that could be a potential legal nightmare, but still going forward with those passions. Though I am departing from... Twin Peaks in a larger sense, and though there will be a bit of nostalgia, it still is almost comforting to know that a legacy still awaits in many shapes and forms. It may not even be us looking at anything such as those fan-created contents. I genuinely do believe Twin Peaks for all it is, for how expansive it is, for how we've had people respond to our videos for the people or podcast audio either way, for how we've seen people engage through the media through things such as the special edition through Twin Peaks. It's it's legacy, it's siblings, it's life exists only as much as the log with the log lady. It's something where the voice echoes, the legend is remembered, there is a presence. And we can't help but hold on to the log, and I'm still going to hold on to that log, because there is a comfort in that knowledge, in the knowing, in the journey we took along this way. Does that... <laughs> I know it went a little bit wild into some of the larger things beyond those bits, but does that assess enough like is did, did that properly answer your question to paraphrase the Beatles boy you're gonna carry that wood carry that wood a log time there's a lyric where it says I never give you my pillow where does that in the song 